Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense out of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, all that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources, and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, and trying to better inform the general public about mental health issues. And welcome again to this podcast. This was pre-recorded for airing first on February 3rd, 2016. Welcome back. Appreciate those of you who listen in regularly and especially those of you who download the podcast from iTunes. Thank you very, very much for your loyal listening. This week, Far and away, in my opinion, the major, major mental health-related story in the news is that the United States urges screening all adults for depression, including and especially pregnant women. This is an influential United States panel last Tuesday called for all adults to be screened for depression, including women during and after pregnancy, marking the first time this panel has urged a focus on maternal mental health. This non-binding call for the screening was issued by the United States Preventative Services Task Force, which is an independent volunteer panel of experts that makes recommendations about the effectiveness of various health and counseling services. Now, if you've never heard of them, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, you probably have heard about previous recommendations they've made uh, because they've certainly been newsworthy and they're very influential. Uh, This is the same panel who recently came up with new recommendations for breast cancer screening, including how often women should have mammograms, how young they should start having them, and how old they should stop having them. And this is also the same panel who came up with recommendations about screening men for prostate cancer, uh, including saying that men should not have the PSA, the blood test for prostate-specific antigen, uh, because getting the tests done leads to a lot of false positives and unnecessary biopsies and surgeries. Their recommendations for cutting back on mammograms and eliminating uh, self-breast or even clinician breast exams were likewise extremely controversial. But even though their recommendations are very controversial and give the health community, the physician community, a lot of anxiety about these recommendations for cutting back on screening for these diseases, 
as well as the public at large who would have more anxiety about cancer if these screenings were decreased. Uh, the recommendations are very influential, um, even in some cases influencing health insurance companies uh, in terms of their decisions as to whether they're going to cover the cost of these tests. And not just commercial plans, but even Medicare pays very close attention to their recommendations. My point in explaining all of this is that they're coming out and saying, look, we need to screen all adults for depression is absolutely huge because this is the panel of experts that is extremely influential in determining the major way that screening for all diseases is conducted in medical care here in the United States. And for this panel to come out and start paying attention to a mental health issue is positively huge. One of the reasons I always mention in my intro to this podcast that you know, I want to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it is because it isn't only that the general public have a sort of stigma about someone with a mental health issue or oh, there's something really wrong with that person and uh, you know they don't see it as a disease that needs treatment they, they lack the, the compassion compared to other things like heart disease or diabetes or cancer but unfortunately and this is not talked about very much there's also stigma within medicine okay there are doctors even entire specialties of doctors who you know see psychiatry as something lesser than other fields in medicine in short it wouldn't be exaggerated i think to say that psychiatry is treated like medicine's redheaded stepchild uh, marginalized not given the same attention and focus as other fields not thought to be as valuable or as worthy of the attention uh, in terms of public health issues, research dollars. So that's why I consider it absolutely huge that this very, very influential panel, which helps form all of our recommendations for preventative measures for all different types of diseases, including cancer, the most serious one, is now saying, look, we need to screen everybody, all adults, they said, for depression. It's about time panels like this saw depression for what it is. It is an illness, just like heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and asthma. It is a public health issue because of the severe disability that it causes and the major economic impact that the suffering from depression causes. So it's high time that, that this panel took a stand. Now, uh, the U.S. PSTF, U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, found convincing evidence that screening improves the accurate identification of adult patients with depression in primary care settings, including pregnant and postpartum women according to their statement that was in the Journal of the American Medical Association. 
Uh, now, this is in keeping with their mission. They're all about, well, what tests or what screening evaluations should be done in routine medical care. And their criteria is, well, if the screening turns up cases and this will then improve the chances that illness and disease will decrease because of better screening, then yes, go ahead and do it. What I was saying before about their radical new changes they proposed in screening for breast cancer and prostate cancer was their findings and their contention through research that if screening done more often or more carefully only results in unnecessary aggressive treatment for those cancers, including biopsies and surgeries that lead to complications and side effects, but don't save that many lives compared to the rates of complications they cause, then the screening should not be done. So for them to come out and say, no, depression screening needs to be done. Everybody, all adults. And on top of that, they put a special focus on women who are pregnant and postpartum, but not just postpartum. They want pregnant women screened for depression, correctly and appropriately recognizing that while postpartum depression is a very serious issue, depression during pregnancy is very common and also needs to be screened for. The panel also found evidence that combining screening with what they called adequate support systems may improve clinical outcomes by reducing or eliminating depression. Absolutely, a tremendous point. Uh, it also is great that the panel said, look, screening leads to better outcomes, and the goal should be to reduce or eliminate depression. These guidelines they've just issued update those issued in 2009, which did not specifically mention depression in women of childbearing age, but called for adult screening for depression when and where support systems allowed. This certainly is much more strongly worded than that uh, previous update six or seven years ago. And the latest report correctly stated that depression is among the leading causes of disability in persons 15 years and older, and is also common in postpartum and pregnant women. The USPSTF found convincing evidence that treating adults with depression with antidepressants, psychotherapy, or both could improve patient outcomes. It is very important that the panel's recommendations included psychotherapy. Uh, one would hope this could possibly influence health insurance companies to ensure adequate coverage for psychotherapy. The report also pointed to some harms associated with antidepressants known as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors because they may increase suicide risk and are associated with, quote, potential serious fetal harms. Now, this, I guess, is the one negative part of the report. They're reacting to serious warnings that are put in the prescribing information with all antidepressants about 
increasing risk of suicide. And those warnings are there, so the panel can't ignore them. But ever since those warnings were put in place uh, more than 10 years ago, there really have been uh, an increase in suicides and less medications prescribed because of that warning. And there is a large movement among the psychiatric research community to get the Food and Drug Administration to remove those warnings because they've done more harm than good. And the hard evidence is not there that antidepressants uh, taken as a whole increase the risk of suicide. Uh, we'll address what they said about potential serious fetal harms when we come back from this first commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. We'll be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, Visit LibertyOnCall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health news. We're talking about the United States Preventative Services Task Force coming out with guidelines suggesting that all adults in the U.S. be screened for depression, with special emphasis for both pregnant women and those who've recently given birth or postpartum women. Now, their report did mention potential serious fetal harms from antidepressant medications. Um, that's very strong language, obviously, um, they're reacting to many reports that there are in the medical literature. 
uh, about uh, SSRI antidepressants and what they may do to developing fetus in women who are pregnant and who take them. Now, it's very important to say that with the exception of Paxil, uh, and in that case of that medication, it has been confirmed that there's an increased risk of cardiac defects, uh, defects rather, in the, uh, in the newborns of women who take them while pregnant. There's no confirmed studies of any direct harm. Um, there were a lot of reports about one particular complication uh, called persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn, where there is a delay in the change of the fetal circulation uh, that is set up a certain way in the womb and has to undergo changes when uh, the baby comes out of the womb and starts to have to breathe air. But later, subsequent research found that rather than antidepressants causing an increase in this type of complication, it is typically found in higher rates among women with depression, regardless of medication. Uh, the bottom line is there are these reports out there, but the hard evidence doesn't point to definite increases in potential serious fetal harms, again, with the possible exception of Paxil and the cardiac defects. So hopefully in the future, uh, the USPSTF can get a consensus if one can be reached in the medical and psychiatric research community about what exactly are the risks with antidepressants in pregnancy or not. And uh, perhaps if a consensus can be reached, the Food and Drug Administration can revise its guidelines and recommendations, then the task force uh, will follow in line along with that. Um, obviously, if psychotherapy alone can be used to treat pregnant women, that's better than exposing the fetus to the risk of medication, no matter how minimal that may be. However, uh, there are some cases where the depression may be quite severe, and you have to weigh the risks of harm to the fetus from being exposed to the antidepressant while in the womb to the much more obvious and much better documented risks to the unborn fetus of the mother being acutely depressed. And uh, those risks are, as I said, much better documented, more obvious. Um, maternal depression can cause uh, intrauterine growth retardation. Um, it can impair uh, mother-infant bonding after delivery. And there's also an increased risk of postpartum depression. Uh, so there's certainly, while there may be risks, um, there certainly are benefits that have to be taken into account against the risks of no medicine um, or the risks that psychotherapy alone may be insufficient. Now, since many questions remain about when to screen for depression and how to treat it, some experts are calling for increased responsiveness within the medical system. <clears throat> uh, Dr. Michael Face of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia wrote an editorial accompanying the article in the journal of the AMA about these task force uh, guidelines. He is a leading researcher in the field of psychiatric medications, and he was quoted as saying, 
until there are better methods to match patients with specific forms of treatment, the best hope to improve on a B grade for patients with depression may be to adapt care systems to respond more flexibly and decisively to key events. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Uh, there needs to be uh, greater attentiveness to the need for treatment for depression and greater flexibility, as Dr. Thay says, as to what may be best in terms of a treatment approach for a given patient at a given time. Um, allow both psychotherapy and medication management uh, to be part of treatment for depression. And then um, the Postpartum Support International, which is an advocacy group, was quoted as saying, as many as one in seven women suffer from postpartum depression. Uh, so it's very important that these task force guidelines be given appropriate attention. Uh, but again, I'll also point out that while postpartum depression is an important issue that needs attention, uh, for women who suffer from depression, there's at least a 50% risk of occurrence of depression during pregnancy as well. Right, so I'm very glad that this national health guidelines organization is paying more attention to depression and mental health issues. Uh, let's hope the medical community sits up and takes notice. Let's help uh, the health insurance industry does as well. <clears throat> this past week here in Atlanta, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution had an article on the front page of the Sunday paper about a psychiatrist uh, in the metro Atlanta area who was arrested for prescribing incredibly large and excessive amounts of painkillers to his patients, with the result that uh, several of them, numerous of them, died of overdoses. Uh, so this article I'm about to go over with you is Quite a timely one here in our area, but uh, opioid abuse or painkiller abuse is becoming much more of an issue. It's even something that the presidential candidates are talking a lot about. Uh, you know that New Hampshire is one of the early presidential primary states, and uh, apparently they have a shockingly high rate of painkiller abuse and drug overdose deaths in that state. And so the candidates... Uh, being mindful of this or talking about what they would do to help with that problem. But this article we're going to talk about is on the long-term use of narcotic painkillers is linked to depression. Not surprisingly, I might add, but people who take prescription opioids. Now, opioids are narcotic painkillers, and they get that term because the chemicals that they're synthesized from and modeled after and uh, in terms of their mechanism of action ultimately stems from opium, uh, hence the term opiates or opioids. Now, use of them for more than a month, which is not very long. Some people who use and abuse them go on for much, much longer than that. But any more than a month, then you have an increased risk of developing depression. According to a new study 
which was published online on January the 11th in the journal Annals of Family Medicine. Pain itself can also lead to depression, but in the study, the link between depression and opioid use held even when the researchers accounted for the potential contribution of pain to the depression. Therefore, if people who are taking opioids for pain notice they have been feeling depressed, both they and their doctors should be aware that the use of the drugs, and not just the pain, may be a potential source of the depressed mood. They really dig rigorous control for the effect of pain, and they feel strongly that these results are independent of the known contribution of pain to depression. Researchers looked at data from three large groups of people who started taking opioids around the time the study started. The first group had nearly 71,000 people, the second had nearly 14,000 people, and the third had nearly 23,000 people. The ages of the people in the study ranged from 18 to 80 years. The people did not have depression at the start of the study. Researchers followed up with the participants for 7 to 10 years, depending on which group the people were in. The researchers found that 12% of the nearly 71,000 people in the first group, 9% of the nearly 14,000 people in the second group, and 11% of the nearly 23,000 people in the third group, had developed depression during this time. They also found that the longer the people took the opioids, the greater their risk of depression was. For example, in the group with almost 71,000 people, 11.6% of those who used opioids for one day to one month developed depression, compared with 13.6% of those who used opioids for one to three months, and 14.4% of those who used the drugs for longer than three months. And in the group with nearly 14,000 people, 8.4% of those who used opioids for one day to one month developed depression, compared with 10.6% of those who used opioids for one to three months, and 19% of those who used the drugs for longer than three months. The opioids included in the study were codeine, fentanyl, hydrocodone, hydromorphone, levorphanol, meperidine, oxycodone, oxymorphone, morphine, and pentazosine. Many experts say that opioids are overprescribed in the United States. There were 259 million prescriptions written for opioids in 2012, which is more than enough to give every American adult their own bottle of pills, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta. In 2014, prescription pain relievers were linked to nearly 19,000 overdose deaths. It is not clear why the long-term use of opioids is linked to a greater risk of depression, uh, but researchers have some ideas. 
And I think we'll talk about that when we come back from our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. We'll be right back after these words. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health news. We're talking about how a study found that long-term use of opioid painkillers is linked to depression. Now, as to the speculation as to what is the link here, uh, what exactly is the mechanism why the painkiller use leads to depression? Um, One of the researchers thought it may have something to do with lowered levels of testosterone. Uh, This chronic long-term use of opioid painkillers leads to low testosterone in both males and females, and that is known to be related to poor mood. There is also a behavioral pathway, uh, as some patients may start to lose self-control, and develop early symptoms of misuse of opioids, which is known to be related to depression. Personally, I think um, neither of those are getting at what is much more likely to be uh, the issue. Uh, The vast majority of people who take opioids don't misuse them. They have the normal reaction to them, which is, okay, they take away my pain, 
but they make me kind of drowsy and I don't like that and they're constipating. So I'm just going to take enough to get rid of my pain and uh, the rest will be left over, which, by the way, leaves them vulnerable to being stolen or misused by other people in your house or either your neighbors, but that's a separate issue. For many of the people who wind up abusing opioids, the mechanism of it is that they start realizing the opioids give them a lift in terms of their mood. Now, this is not something that most people experience. Most people, like I just said, like, okay, it gets rid of my pain, makes me a little drowsy. But for a subset of people, they get more energy, and it gives their mood a kind of a euphorian type of a lift. And these are the people who are especially vulnerable to becoming uh, addicted to opioid painkillers and who wind up abusing them. But as is with most other addictive substances, uh, there's a crash when the effect of them wears off. And that's why you need more and more to get the same effect, whether this is alcohol or cocaine or amphetamine, marijuana, what have you. It's no different with opioids. Uh, so this chronic overuse and misuse of them uh, can lead to depression in those folks who have this unique type of reaction to them. Regardless, uh, it certainly is a major public health problem. And <clears throat> with, like I was saying earlier, when we were talking about this article, 19,000 overdose deaths in 2014 from painkillers, uh, the United States Congress is sitting up and taking notice. In the earlier segment, we talked about how presidential candidates are saying something about it, especially in New Hampshire, uh, but there is a uh, committee led by Charles Grassley of Iowa who is looking at establishing stricter guidelines for prescribing limits for opiate painkillers to try to do something about this. And while it is very appropriate and very important for our legislators to sit up and take notice of such a terrible public health problem, uh, the possibility remains that there'll be negative consequences for patients who do not abuse or misuse opiate painkillers or uh, in any way, shape, or form, not taking them too long, not taking too many of them. Um, if greater restrictions are put in place regarding uh, their use and, and the prescribing of them, then uh, in order to curb the effects of abuse of them and all the overdose deaths, it's certainly possible that it could have a negative impact on uh, the ability for people to take them lawfully and without any form of abuse of them, uh, these people could have more difficulty in getting them. So uh, nothing specific that I'm aware of that's been proposed yet, but something clearly is coming. Next up on psychiatry today, tonight, this is a, an important issue for those of you who have elderly parents or grandparents for whom uh, they've had to stop driving or it's very clear that they're going to have to stop uh, because their reflexes and their vision 
aren't good enough to continue driving safely or they're having problems with dementia and that's why they're not able to drive safely anymore. But it turns out that one study found that taking older drivers off the road is tied to an increase in the risk of depression. So I thought it important to bring this article to your attention and uh, talk about what I think might be some practical solutions to this problem, even though admittedly they might not be simple to implement. When older drivers stop getting behind the wheel, they may be more likely to feel depressed and to develop other health problems than their peers who remain on the road, according to a research review. Giving up the car keys was linked to an almost doubled risk of depression, the analysis found, a connection the researchers believe might be at least partly due to the social isolation or lack of independence that can ensue when elderly people can no longer get around by car. Well, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, think about yourself. Think about what would happen if someday you weren't able to drive anymore and your kids had that very difficult conversation with you and took away the keys, sold the car. Um, wouldn't it be understandable that depression might be your reaction to that? You can no longer come and go independently. You have to depend on others to take you places. And yes, it's much more difficult to see friends or to get out of the house and have social interactions. And we know that social isolation uh, at least can lead to depression or uh, we also know that social interaction helps prevent depression and, by the way, also helps prevent declines in cognitive function, including memory. Now, the decision to stop driving, of course, is not trivial. And uh, now, according to the study, it may have significant implications for the patient's health, well-being, and life expectancy. There are 39.5 million adults age 65 and older in the United States, and most have driver's licenses. This uh, article that we're talking about was in a recent issue of the Journal of the American Geriatrics Society. It was published online on January the 19th. Because driving requires good vision and reflexes, as well as good physical and mental health, getting behind the wheel may become unsafe for some older individuals. For this new research, scientists reviewed 16 previously published studies examining a range of medical outcomes in people 55 and older who stopped driving. A pooled analysis of results from five of the studies found former drivers were 91% more likely to experience depressive symptoms than their peers remained on the road. 91% more likely. That is astounding. You almost never see any risk factor for a disease in a research study reach that threshold. That's almost a sure thing. That is positively stunning. 
Older adults who stopped driving were also more likely to report poor health, according to four studies that looked at results from quality of life surveys. One study done in Finland found that 59% of drivers rated their health as good compared with just 43% of ex-drivers. But it's possible the drivers had stopped driving because of poor health. Five studies found declines in physical health linked to driving cessation, although in three of these it's possible medical problems forced people off the road. Some studies also linked driving cessation to declines in social health, which appeared more pronounced for women than men. One of these studies, for example, found ex-drivers had a 51% reduction in their social network of friends and relatives over 13 years. That is remarkable, and uh, we know that this social withdrawal, whether it's forced because of inability to drive or otherwise, is very detrimental to mental health as well as physical. Two studies linked driving cessation to mortality. One found that ex-drivers were four to six times more likely to die over three years than continuing drivers, while the other found the five-year mortality risk 68% higher for non-drivers. This is astounding. It reminds me of the research that has found that when someone loses their spouse, they're much more likely to die within the next 18 months. It's that type of effect. Now, none of these studies were designed to show whether giving up driving caused the problems or vice versa. Another limitation is that the studies used a wide variety of measures to assess health and often relied on surveys or symptoms reported by patients. All but one of the studies exploring the connection between depression and driving cessation was based on self-reported symptoms, not a clinical diagnosis. The findings highlight the need for more research to pinpoint how taking car keys away from elderly adults may influence both physical and mental health. We don't know how much the observed declines due to driving cessation versus the extent that the physical and mental declines themselves contributed to driving cessation in the first place. A sudden change in health, a stroke, or a more gradual shift in driving abilities all might signal the right time to stop driving. When that time comes, maintaining mobility and social connections may help avert depression or other adverse health effects. If cessation of driving increases social isolation and access to goods and services, then it's no surprise that health declines follow. Well, I'll give you some of my own advice about solutions when we come back from this commercial break. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? 
We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. We're talking about an alarming study that found almost all older drivers who are taken off the road because of either physical and or mental health problems are vulnerable to becoming depressed. Now, the... Uh, Analysis was funded in part by the AAA Foundation for Traffic Safety and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And again, the study was in the January 19 issue of American Geriatric Society. The article itself may say something about solutions. However, the uh, article I read to you about the study certainly doesn't. I have some ideas of my own not saying they're going to be easy to implement, and uh, also they may await future technologies. But nonetheless, this certainly is a very alarming problem, needs to be addressed. And again, those of you who have elderly parents or grandparents facing giving up the car keys certainly, I think, should pay attention to this issue. The obvious solution would be that there needs to be people who are willing and able to give these elder former drivers rides um, within reason to where they want or need to go. Okay, now um, let's take the more difficult situation. For example, there are not kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews or friends or neighbors who are willing and able to do this. Okay, I mean, those obviously would be the best options. But let's say none of those options are in place. Well, um, churches and synagogues and other houses of worship uh, often have volunteer services 
granted, these are mostly for the purpose of taking elder folks to their doctor appointments and so on, but they might also include shopping trips or social outings and so on. Okay, so uh, again, um, private uh, faith-based or other non-faith-based volunteer services are one potential solution to keeping the uh, elderly who no longer drive more mobile and therefore uh, having continuing social contact. Um, Another solution could be uh, Uber for the elderly, right? Maybe um, a subspecialty of Uber itself or perhaps another Uber or Lyft type service would evolve that would specialize in giving the elderly rides. Uh, Certainly, they would have to be uh, at lower subsidized prices than what um, Uber or Lyft charge just uh, for any old ride. Uh, This would make it more affordable for the elderly to get around, more affordable than a taxi, more convenient than public transportation and probably safer. Um, So that is something that's not here now, but um, maybe and hopefully research like this would give some entrepreneur an idea to start something like that and find a business model that could allow it to work. Um, Granted, uh, a very tall order indeed. And finally, uh, this Next solution that I'm going to propose awaits both further developments in technology and especially further developments in legislation, and that is self-driving cars. Now, this is a technology that is on the way. It is coming. Uh, The automobile industry and the technology industries Uh, have already been working on this, and such devices are in the works. It is, and they're going to be here sooner than later. But as it is with all kinds of cutting-edge developments in technologies, the laws regarding their use lag far behind the technology. Um, There isn't even enough laws or regulations to cover the implications of using the much uh, assisted uh, self-driving cars, um, much less the complete self-driving cars. In other words, you you have self-driving cars where uh, there is a way for someone sitting in the driver's seat to actually take over in certain extraordinary situations in which um, the computer would not be able to uh, make the right decision in time. Uh, But there are also cars being developed where it would just be an autonomous vehicle that would take people uh, where they wanted to go uh, without the occupant uh, needing to or being able to uh, intervene in the operating of the vehicle. Now, while this would be potentially an ideal solution for elder drivers who you know, can no longer drive and don't have anyone available to drive in places. Uh, but again, it's going to take a long time for the regulatory authorities 
on the local, state, and federal level to come up with rules governing the use of vehicles like this. Um, hopefully that can be done quickly because, again, this technology is coming. It's being developed. It's going to be here before we know it. And it would be a shame not to be able to take advantage of it because the legal and regulatory infrastructure were not in place. Uh, so <clears throat> while I admit that a lot of things I propose are, are yet to be developed, at least knowing about this problem that elder drivers taken off the road are more prone to depression, uh, hopefully their family and friends will pay more attention to this issue and come up with ways to uh, keep them from being socially isolated in their homes. Next up on Psychiatry Today, adding behavioral therapy to medication reduces depression long term. Now, while many researchers have talked about the benefits of combining medication and therapy, I've often felt that was the gold standard. Uh, some studies are controversial. Uh, some of them say medication uh, is better in terms of decreasing symptoms than therapy, but many studies say that while medication may work more quickly, cognitive behavioral therapy keeps people feeling well much longer. So let's take a look at this latest study. When depression does not respond to antidepressant medication, especially in those cases, replacing it with cognitive behavioral therapy, or otherwise known as CBT, or adding CBT to treatment with medication may be effective and last for several years, according to a trial done in the UK. Three to five years after having up to 18 CBT sessions, trial participants were less depressed than those who couldn't get the added behavioral therapy, suggesting a long-term benefit that makes CBT cost-effective. Antidepressants are often prescribed for people with depression, but we know that many people do not respond fully to such treatment. Researchers previously found that giving CBT in addition to usual care that included antidepressant medication was effective in reducing depressive symptoms and improving quality of life over a period of 12 months in patients whose depression had not responded to treatment with antidepressants. Prior to this study, there was little evidence of effectiveness over the long term. The research team followed up on a trial done in 73 general practices between 2008 and 2010, including 469 patients aged 18 to 75 who had taken antidepressants for at least six weeks and still had substantial depressive symptoms. They randomly assigned them to either continuing usual care or adding the CBT. Those who had the CBT attended 12 to 18 sessions with a therapist over four to five months, and then three to five years later, they followed up using general practitioner notes and questionnaires mailed to patients. Questionnaires were to gauge depression and quality of life. Now, of the original group, they had 248 patients complete and return questionnaires. And compared to those with usual care, their average depressive symptoms were about five points lower. Uh, so the CBT did make a significant difference. 
And this is in people who had, on average, completed their treatment about 40 months earlier. So it was a long-standing effect. This is consistent with other studies that show that CBT results in lasting improvements. People who are depressed often think about themselves and the world in a different and more negative way. CBT is a way of helping people with depression change the way they think in order to improve how they feel and change what they do. Patients learn skills to help them better manage their mood that they continue to use even after the therapy sessions stop. The CBT in this particular trial costs about an average of 489 measured in U.S. dollars annually per patient. Okay, now it's important to note they manage healthcare costs much differently in the U.K. than here in the States. Uh, I seriously doubt someone could have uh, 12 to 18 sessions of CBT and it costs less than 500 bucks. But with the long-term follow-up, CBT as an adjunct to usual care was a good value for the money. And these low-intensity interventions that have been proposed, like computerized therapy packages and guided self-help, show little evidence of long-term effectiveness. The higher-intensity therapy, uh, including working with a therapist, was shown to be effective when added to the use of antidepressants, and now you have the evidence that it's effective in the long term as well. And not only that, but this was used in a primary care setting, not in the specialty setting of patients seeing a psychiatrist. But the reality is that high-quality psychological treatment is often only available with an out-of-pocket payment and isn't standardized or promoted the way the pharmaceutical treatment is. Um, so in many ways, what could be considered a luxurious treatment actually might pay for itself if it were available. Again, it's important to note that medication treatments are standardized and tested, but CBT, not so much. Um, you don't know what you're getting if you go see a, pr a provider or have they been certified and trained in CBT? Uh, are they doing it out of the manual or are they just doing it freestyle on their own? And this has implications for whether the treatment will be effective or not. Uh, but it's nice to see from the study and others like it, if it, if it is done properly, it can be effective for the long term. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. Hope you have a wonderful stress-free week until we get together again next week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio.